Last Tuesday, 5th of November, we awoke to scenes of jubilation and celebration among Democratic Party supporters in America with the election of Barack Obama as their country's next president. But on the evening of that same day, November the 5th, there were also celebrations in many parts of the United Kingdom, focused on an event which took place over 400 years ago. What is commonly called the gunpowder plot. When I was younger, we used to chant, and I don't know whether children still do, we used to chant most of the first two lines, but here's the full version. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. This is not great poetry, by the way. <laughs> Guy Fawkes was his intent to blow up king and parliament. Well, I don't know whether they teach kids this in school, so for the younger ones among you, a bit of history. Guy Fawkes, or his full name, proper name was Guido Fawkes, was an explosive expert for a group of conspirators who plotted to kill the king, his family, and most of the Protestant aristocracy in a single attack by blowing up the House of Parliament during the state opening and to install a Catholic head of state. A tip-off led to a search of the vaults beneath the House of Lords, including the Undercroft. And at midnight on the 5th of November, 1605, Guy Fawkes was discovered by the authorities guarding a pile of wood next to 20 barrels of gunpowder. He and his co-conspirators were arrested, found guilty of treason, and hung, drawn, and quartered. And every year afterwards, the foiling of the plot has been celebrated with fireworks and bonfires on which guys, or effigies of Guy Fawkes, are burned. Again, this is probably not politically correct now, and they probably have got rid of the guys, but anyway, it used to be like that when I was growing up. Uh, one of the tr conspirators, Francis Tresham by name, before the event, wrote to his uncle, who was a member of parliament, to warn him of the danger, and we have a copy of the letter, it's still preserved. This is what he wrote. It's not uh, easy to follow, but listen carefully. My Lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care for your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this parliament. For God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. Well, he was right about man's plots to punish what he believed to be the wickedness of his time. But unfortunately for him, he was wrong about God's plans. That God concurred with their plot. And ironically, it was his letter, among other things, that tipped off the authorities and led to the plot being foiled. The book of Proverbs puts it very succinctly. Many are the plans in a man's heart but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Now, today as we continue our series in the New Testament book of Acts, which we've entitled The Spreading Flame, we're going to read the account of another plot hatched by a group of conspirators in which the life of one individual rather than a nation is threatened. And it is a plot which fails because it is God's plan. So, the title I want to use this evening 
and I'm saying it really carefully because when I devised it, I realized I could say the wrong thing. Plots and plans, not plots and plans, all right? So, <laughs> let's read the dramatic story, and it really is a dramatic story in Acts 23. Help to have a Bible right in front of you. If you don't have one, don't feel embarrassed. Just get one out of the pew. If there's not one near you, just wave and someone will pass one to you. Acts 23, verses 12 through 35. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me, to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man aside by the hand and asked him, What does he want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I'd learned he's a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusation had, some, had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Silesia, he said, I'll hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. This is God's word for us this evening. Let's just look simply at two things. First of all, we'll look at the plots of men. And then in contrast, we'll look at the plans of God. First of all, the plots of men. Paul, this apostle or sent one, messenger of Jesus Christ, is a marked man. Everywhere he has travelled, 
he has met with opposition from his fellow Jews who regard him as a turncoat and a heretic. Once he himself had been a key leader among them, ready to wipe out the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. But then a dramatic encounter with this same Jesus, now the risen Lord, had turned his life around. He'd received a commission from the Lord to take this message of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, a non-Jewish world. Many of those who heard his message among the Jew, Gentiles welcomed it. But by and large, his fellow Jews had rejected the message and they wanted to kill him. Now back in Jerusalem, we've seen in our series, he's been saved by the skin of his teeth from being torn apart by an enraged mob in the temple courts by the intervention of the Roman army who dragged him to safety into their garrison next to the temple. An attempt by the by the commander of the garrison to get to the bottom of the problem had led, as we saw this morning, to a dispute between Paul and the Jewish religious leaders which had terminated, verse 10, in a great uproar and we read, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered his troops to go down, take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So here's Paul back in the barracks For the moment, he is safe, and as a Roman citizen, he is well treated, as he awaits resolution of his case. But his Jewish opponents are not prepared to wait for the legal processes to take place. They determine to take matters into their own hands. And so we come to this plot which is hatched. The conspirators' plot is to kill Paul. And the plotters are deadly serious about their intentions. Verse 12 and 13, the next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy, bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in the plot. We read here, they bound themselves with an oath. The original text says, they swear an anathema on themselves for God to curse them if they don't carry out what they plan to do. To kill Paul. Paul. And as a mark of that utmost seriousness, they will not eat or drink until they have carried out their task. However, they have a problem. An urgent and pressing problem. There is no way that even a group of 40 fanatics can break into a Roman fortress housing a thousand crack Roman troops. Somehow, they've got to get Paul out of there into the open. And for that, they need help. So the plotters enlist the help of others and their co-conspirators are the Jewish religious authorities. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more information, accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. They asked the ruling chief priests, the religious authorities, along with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to petition the commander of the garrison so they can get Paul out of there under the pretext of wanting more information from him. But their plan, of course, is to lie in wait on the narrow streets of Jerusalem as Paul is escorted from the fortress of Antonia, which is kind of in the north of the temple complex, to get them down to the Sanhedrin hall. They'll have to cross over the city uh, to their hall, which is in the southwest, and there they'll ambush the party and kill Paul. 
Even though it will be no easy task to overwhelm the, the guards, they're prepared to take the risk and even lose their own lives to accomplish their goal. So the plotters, 40 religious zealots and their co-conspirators, the religious authorities in Jerusalem, normally they didn't get on together, but they unite in this common purpose in the plot to kill Paul. Uh, one writer, Daryl Bock, comments, In seeking to take matters into their own hands, they overstep the divine law they think they're defending by agreeing to lie and murder. The irony is that they take an oath before God that actually violates God's standards and will. Now, before we move on, it's worth pausing to ask, why a person like Paul and the message he proclaims should arouse such hatred that people are prepared to go to such extremes and resort to murder even at the risk of their own lives. If you were here yesterday and you missed something when Patrick was speaking, his life is threatened from time to time. Those who work with him have police guards because of what they say on religious issues. You see, the the popular view of religion in the West, is it not? Is that all, be- all religions, basically, they all teach the same sort of things. And they worship the same kind of God. And so they promote love and peace between all the peoples of the world. The reality, of course, is very different. Can I remind you, it has always been different. And will be different. Why? Well, if you go back, you'll discover that the very first murder in human history... When Cain killed his brother Abel, what was the fight about? About religion. About how God should be worshipped. Now, of course, in the West, again, the solution, of course, popularized by John Lennon in his song, Imagine, A World with No Religion, and more recently reinforced by Elton John, is to say the best thing we can do, therefore, is to get rid of religion. The world will be a happier place, because religions lead to conflict. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop with people saying that, but it soon moves to acting, to stamp out religion. And you see this, of course, in the 20th century with places like Stalin's Russia or Pol Pot's Cambodia. In his book, which I commend to you, The Twilight of Atheism, Alistair McGrath comments, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. Stop to think about that for a moment. So today in our own nation there are calls by secular humanists like Richard Dawkins to ban the teaching of religion in schools. Not only that, to suggest very strongly that we ought to ban the teaching of religion in homes by parents. But as McGrath demonstrates so clearly in his book, Such attempts are doomed to failure. You can no more stamp out the human quest for God than the human quest for food. For human beings made in the image of God seek after God. And so religion becomes what it is. A matter of life and death. Of eternal life and death. It's not just some casual issue on a par with the kind of music you prefer or even, despite what the late Bill Shankly said, about football and who you support. So if it is such an important issue, it will lead to conflict. 
And if this is the case, if it is so important, you need to discover, as Cain and Abel did, what kind of religion pleases God and is acceptable to him, and what kind of religion does not please God and is unacceptable to him. And this inevitably will lead to conflict. The Bible, way back in the book of Psalms, describes the sort of cosmic background to this great conflict. On an international scale, the psalmist says about the great plot, he says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Written hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, but the first Christians believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the appointed one, or to use the Hebrew word Messiah, or the Greek word the Christ, And so they expected and interpreted plots against him and then against them. So this plot in Acts 23 is but a subplot against the great plot against God and his son Jesus Christ. It is a plot which, humanly speaking, has every chance of success. And at very least, Paul's life is in serious danger. But for one thing, the plot does not concur with God's plan. So we turn from the plots of men to, secondly, the plans of God. We saw in our study this morning, and if you didn't hear Colin speak on it, it's a wonderful, challenging message and a great encouraging message if you're going through a dark period in your life at the present. We saw that Paul's future is assured at his lowest point as he is reassured by the Lord's promise that he's going to take him from here, from Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away to Rome. The Lord's plan is to save Paul. Look again at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In the Bible speaks today, commentary on Acts. John Stock comments, Even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. No weapon forged against him will prevail. Isaiah 54, 17. You can look that up for yourself. And this we discover, and the conspirators discover, as their plot is foiled. But notice how God foils human plots through human agency. And most unlikely human agency. The Lord carries out his plan to save Paul in the first instance through Paul's nephew, verse 16. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, this is a wonderful and intriguing verse. It's the only time we know anything about the Apostle Paul who's written about and writes through most of the New Testament from Acts onwards, it's the only thing we know about his family. And everyone speculates and says, and it's one of these questions, you know, when you get to heaven, you can ask the Luke, well, you can ask Paul himself, you know, how many family did you have, you know? Who's this sister? We know, of course, that Paul was a wealthy man, born a Roman citizen, a Pharisee, but a Jew, a Roman citizen by birth. Uh, Writing to the Christians in Philippi, Philippians 3 verse 8, he says, I lost everything for the sake of Christ. Most people believe that when Paul became a Christian, his family disinherited him. But here we discover he has a sister. And his sister has a son. 
was his sister resident in Jerusalem? Or, or was the nephew, like Paul did many years before, was he, had he been sent to Jerusalem to study? Was this nephew and his Paul's sister, were they believers in Jesus? We don't know. We don't even know how the nephew learned of the plot to kill Uncle Paul. Uh, Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, has got a popular commentary on the book of Acts called Acts for Everyone. He makes an interesting suggestion. He suggests that the word, he's described here as a young man, which can either mean a teenager or someone in their early 20s. He suggests that he's very young, you know, a young teenager, and that he discovers it when he's out with his mates and they're discussing their family. And one of them says to his friend, he says, you know, my dad's not eating or drinking at the moment. Uh, and his mate says, Paul's nephew says, really, is he ill? No, no, he, he, he and his mates, you know, there's 40 of them, they've taken a vow, they're going to kill that Paul fellow. Terrible fellow, isn't he? And Paul's nephew says, yeah, terrible fellow. And they scoots off to tell Paul, you know. Well, that's speculation, we don't know. Uh, my own opinion is that he, he, I, I believe he probably came from an influential background and somewhere was close to the authorities. And he, he maybe was an older young man in his 20s, but he, somehow he heard of the plot. Whatever the case, we discover that he learned what was happening and believe it or not, he goes to tell his Uncle Paul what's happening. Uh, of course... Paul would have access to his family as a Roman citizen. He wasn't locked in some deep, dark dungeon and kept away from everyone. He was allowed to go in there. And on hearing what he has to say, Paul calls over one of the centurions. And again, you can see the kind of authority a Roman citizen has here. You know, he says to one of the centurions, Hey, you, son, come over here. I've got a message here. This young man's got something he wants to say. Take him to the commander. And so... The centurion takes him to the commander, explains what's happened. This is the guy who's in charge of the sort of colonel-in-chief, charge of all the fortress of Antonia. Very responsible person. thousand troops under his command. And when he hears about it, he decides to take immediate action. He doesn't want any trouble in this terrible posting he's been placed in in Jerusalem, which is just a hotbed for problems, let alone an assassination on the streets. He doesn't want anything like that on his watch. And so, he swears the nephew to secrecy, and this is the last we hear of the nephew. But let me just say something simple, by the way, really. It's the only thing we learn about this young man in the, in the New Testament, in God's Word, and it's the only thing we know he did, but what a crucial thing he did to help to fulfill God's plan. I guess many of us, most of us here, in God's great plan, we're more like Paul's nephew than Paul, aren't we? You know, and God may want to use you in some small way that everyone thinks is insignificant but actually is quite crucial in your faithful witness for Christ to speak a word, to say something, to do something and only eternity will reveal some of these wonderful stories how things fit together sometimes you hear about them like this but often you just don't hear till much, much later the kind of things that happen that God uses and the kind of people that God uses. You just be faithful where God has placed you, even this week in your office, in your university, in your home. God may just want you to speak a word to someone and who knows, that person may be someone, a link in a chain that leads to Christ or influences the destiny of God's kingdom in some particular way. I see Barry nodding there or some small piece of literature that you think has just gone out there and somebody is used by it. 
So the Lord's plan to save Paul and get him to Rome is carried out, first of all through Paul's nephew, and then through the Roman commander. Verse 23. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, to go to Caesarea night to night, provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Uh, and he sends a letter to explain the situation. This is, this is a summary of the letter. Uh, and it's inter- Did you notice as you read it, he doesn't exactly give the full story? Uh, he, he kind of embellishes his own part in it, the commander. I saved this Roman citizen. He doesn't mention, actually, that he arrested him, tied him up and was about to flog him. And they would have done so if the Roman citizen hadn't just said, hang on a moment, I'm a Roman citizen. But anyway, we all tend to do that kind of thing, don't we, to embellish our own part in these events. And uh, it, whatever the case, it accurately summarizes the situation. It places the matter in higher hands. And so without delay, at nine o'clock in the evening... They set out on this 60-mile journey to Caesarea. Uh, There are two Caesareas, well, several Caesareas named after Caesar, but this one's called Caesarea Maritime, which is on the coast. It was the provincial capital. Uh, The governor didn't usually come to Jerusalem except at festivals, and most of them didn't want to come even then, but uh, they had this nice place with Herod's palace there. And so they set out, and they break their journey halfway across at a place called Antipatris, which is a kind of staging post. And that's the most difficult bit of the journey, the most dangerous, where zealots and bandits might be along the route. And uh, they get there safely, and they send the infantry, the spearmen back, and the cavalry march on the next day and finally arrive at Caesarea. So here's Paul. He arrives in Caesarea on horseback with an armed escort and is delivered safely along with a letter of explanation to the governor. And after the governor ascertains that Paul falls under his jurisdiction. No doubt when he asks him where he's from, he's hoping he comes from another province so that he can offload him onto somebody else, as Pilate did with our Lord, you remember. He realizes he has to try the case, and so he says to Paul, you're in custody until I get your accusers here and we have a proper trial. So here's Paul in Herod's palace, and he's secure. Not just under the protection of Rome, but he's secure under the protection and providence of God. You see, the plans of God always prevail against the plots of men. In a sermon on this passage, Kent Hughes, the American, love what he says. He says, Paul left town on horseback surrounded by 470 soldiers. He left town more like a king than a criminal. Meanwhile, his assassins were left in town fighting insistent hunger pains. And for those who are worried about them, you can be absolutely sure that none of them died of starvation, but that some religious expert worked out a plan by which they could be let off the hook because they hadn't actually killed Paul. And we can be absolutely sure from the record of history, and as we'll see God willing later in this series, that Paul eventually did make it to Rome. Though he didn't know it would take two more years sitting in Caesarea, and then two more years in Rome, before his trial finally came before Caesar himself and he was finally cleared only later to be arrested and finally executed so let me say to me in conclusion what we've been talking about this evening because it's very important it's a kind of the sermon is kind of putting on a bigger scheme what we thought about this morning that we can be encouraged personally but also we can be encouraged 
as we look at the international, national scene, that God's plans always prevail against the plots of men, but that we have a responsible part to play in that. Remember the verse, Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. His plans do not always mean that human plots are destined to be foiled. Sometimes they succeed, as the martyrdom of Stephen. And the blood of the martyrs down the centuries, to our present day, attest. But God's plans always prevail, even when they seem to succeed. And of course, the supreme example of this is the apparent success of the plan to kill Jesus. They conspired and plotted together. And it resulted in his death, his crucifixion. But in fact, it was God's plan that succeeded in the end. You remember that first great sermon on the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Peter stands before the Jewish crowd, many of whom had been complicit in the death of Jesus a few weeks before. And he brings together our, our two themes. What we call technically divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Notice what he says. This man was handed over to you, Jesus, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God's plan. And you did it. With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. What an assurance. I began by focusing on the American election this week. When I clicked on the BBC website on the day of the voting, it had an interesting sign, which I uh, couldn't paste it, as I do. It was outside a Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama. And this is what it said. Go out and vote. Future in our hands. Go out and vote. Future in our hands. The call to go out and vote is one which every person privileged to live in a democracy should value and use. But as we do, we can be reassured that ultimately, the future is not in our hands. The sign, especially outside a Baptist church, should have read, go out and vote. Future in God's hands. And if this is so, we need to make sure that we individually have committed our plans and our lives into God's hands and into the nail-pierced hands of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. Maybe you're plotting, conspiring, or just ignoring the one who rules over all, the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm which began with nations and people plotting against the Lord and His Anointed One concludes as I do with words of warning. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's do that. Let's pray.